I'll give it this to Bridget in a second, but uh, what do you think of measure for measure? Okay, uh, this is ordinarily regarded as a very dark play. Sometimes they don't, it's not even described as a comedy at all. It's described as a problem play. It's just that that makes the play even more mysterious because no one knows exactly what a problem play is or does, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, when you have to create a new genre of literature, it means you're reading it wrong, <laughs> right? Uh, I worked on this for a very long time, actually for longer than you've been alive. It took me that long to write that essay. On the other hand, um, what I was trying to do is show you the power of history, right? Because um, it's often the case, particularly with literary criticism, that uh, there's an almost infinite plurality of schools and perspectives that you might bring to bear on this. The great advantage with the history gives us is that it shows that the vast majority of them are just factually wrong. All right. Um, when you look at this in its historical context, it is possible to drop the hammer on what this means. All right. And it clears a whole lot of crap away. More bad criticism have been written about measure for measure than probably any other Shakespearean play. Yeah? Why do you think it attracts so much bad criticism? Um, well, first of all, because it's a mysterious and puzzling play. The structure of it is really weird. All right. Uh, the motivations are really hard to understand. Uh, if you don't see that this is an allegory, I mean, why does Mariana say, yeah, I mean, he jilted me five years ago, he said, well, we're to have sex at night, and he won't know it's me, well, that sounds good. <laughs> I mean, you want to, well, all right, no woman has ever said, well, that makes sense to me, you know. The, the part that confused me when I first read it was Isabella agreeing to marry the Duke at the end of the play, and it was just, uh, that seemed to come out of the blue to me. Silence is consent, you know. But you, you need to know um, English common law. You need to know history, right? There have been feminist readings of this that will know they're not getting married because she actually doesn't say anything. No, if you actually knew some history, um, you would understand that silence is consent is a well-established idea of English common law. It's what protected Thomas More 100 years earlier. And for God's sake, this isn't for the Globe Theater. This, is, this has one and only one audience prior to 1660 when the end of the Puritan Revolution comes. So 1603 to 1660, it gets produced once. Christmas, 18, uh, 1603, all right, for the king and his court. Okay, this is the most politically sophisticated audience in the country. <coughs> it is impossible that anyone in that audience would be unaware that silence is consent. Now, if it had been for the Globe, then I don't know, maybe. I mean, at least some people would. But in this particular audience, again, knowing the historical details matters. Right? And allows us to um, go to work on this. Uh, there's no reference to God in the whole blasted play. Okay. And yet, I mean, there's all these weird um, locutions that are begging to be uh, reconciled with their real object. And so uh, that's what makes, that's one, one of the many things that makes this a very difficult play, 
right? Also, you need to know the Bible pretty thoroughly in order to be able to pick out the stories, right? Shakespeare clearly did, all right? Now, before we get all excited about whether Shakespeare was a Catholic or not, <laughs> the answer is, I don't know, and neither does anybody else. <laughs> I, I, hard to break to you, but no one knows what Shakespeare's religious opinions were. I mean, he probably had some, but what they were, damn if I know, all right? Um, you will find that everybody, because Shakespeare's so widely admired, wants to claim him as one of their own. Was Shakespeare homosexual? Was Shakespeare a vegetarian? <laughs> was Shakespeare left-handed? I don't know. <laughs> All right? But no doubt, homosexual southpaws and uh, vegans are really interested in such readings. All right? Um, the best I can do is I'm quite sure that he's very familiar with the Bible. But anybody that had an education back then would be, or good education. Actually, anybody had a good education today would be, but um, we live in a blighted time. All right. But the Puritans are trying to close down theaters. And I'm a, I don't care for much, much for puritanical Christianity anyway. It's not that I'm a friend of sin. It's just that uh, this easily becomes a caricature of itself. Where we go hunting for evil. All right, not with the hook to draw out the beast, but you go hunting for it in everybody but yourself. All right, and that's a serious problem. All right, pride is what animates Puritanism, Puritans, and that's why Shakespeare attributes it to Angela. All right, uh, it took me a very long time to dig through the Bible and work back and forth. Um, but when I first encountered it, I was probably your age, and uh, it, it set me to thinking, and uh, what bothered me is that I couldn't make any sense out of it. In other words, they call it a problem play because, well, this is uh, the most unfunny comedy I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, wow, a sexual blackmail of a nun. No, it's actually not all that fun. There are parts of it that remind me of anything of the Mandracula, mm -hmm. which is, yeah. was shocking. I wasn't expecting that from Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. It really did. Yes, exactly right. That's certainly true. Um, that's not. I mean, that's actually a very good observation. Uh, this is a, a double cross, a triple cross. But um, you know, you're on the inside of the joke in the Mandracula. You know what's going on here. Um, the joke is. On, on us as much as on anybody else. How so? Well, um, because if you don't see the allegory, then what does this look like? Um, this very strange and stubborn young woman refuses to have sex to save her brother. She may. Refuses to have sex to save her brother. Right? And Angelo turns out to be a crook and then has her brother killed after she th he thinks he's had sex with her, all right? So he's a Machiavellian. But the question is, why does a Machiavellian care about it, the sex life of the people of Vienna? All right? So the Duke is, uh, in some respects, or, or can be read as a Machiavellian character, but eventually I moved away from the Duke as Machiavellian toward Lucio, all right? Lucio is bad to the bone, 
and he has all the best lines. Right? As Caliban has so many good lines in the Tempest. All right, go ahead, Bridget. Um, so I'm going to leave the biblical theme to the essay that we read because that was everything that could be said about it. So instead, I'm going to touch on some of the main themes inside of the play because um, they're super important to the understanding of the play. Um, so also, I won't attempt a summary because I can't do that justice in the time that I'm given because it's super intricate and it's just everything depends on the other thing. Um, but, okay, so as Dr. Sugru said, it is actually kind of impossible to understand this play without historical context. Um, the Puritans were attempting to shut down the theaters because they th saw them as, like, dens of immorality, and they encouraged homosexuality because men played women, and there was drinking, and there was bear baiting, and everything that was horrible known to mankind was there. So Puritans were attempting to shut them down. But also brothels were a very popular pastime for theater goers as well. They would probably hit both of them in an evening, um, <laughs> if not more than once. <clears throat> but also sex is a huge theme of this play, um, as I will explain momentarily. Um, okay, so this play pits two sides of many different themes. Like Isabella and Angelo are kind of two sides um, like the good and evil kind of represented against each other and which one will win, we don't know. I mean, we do know, but. Okay, so first off we have justice. There's the merciful justice, which Isabella is a champion of and the Duke at the end is a champion of. And then there's Angelo's twisted sense of justice, which is a strict adherence to the law used for his own personal gain. Um, <clears throat> law is everything to Angelo, but he offers to spare Isabella's life if he sleeps with, if she sleeps with him. This is extraordinarily hypocritical, obviously. Um, and Angelo continuously pretends to be someone who's like lawful and virtuous, but he actually perverts the law and moves away from true true justice um, in order to suit his own needs. Um, the Duke, on the other hand, kind of a foil to Angelo in the end, uh, grants mercy to both Lucio and Angelo, and Claudio as well. Claudio. Um, <laughs> and he's more of a benevolent ruler who upholds the law, but doesn't, um, he's not vicious in his dealings with the people, so it's, it's showing us that justice is not necessarily do whatever the law says to like the fullest extent possible. Um, and because he was going to have wonderful Lucio hanged after he was married to the prostitute, um, but then he repents and pardons him and just forces him to get married. Um, but Isabella also, she's um, a huge proponent in the whole merciful side of justice because she begs for mercy to Angelo throughout the entire play. Um, and she quotes, um, she, not, she doesn't quote, she, um, like it's him, she's like, well, how would you be if he, which is the top of judgment, should but judge as you are? Oh, think on that, and mercy then will breathe within your lips like man new made. So she's begging Angelo to think of, um, as God judges, be merciful. But Angelo refuses, obviously. Um, 
but she and the Duke are both foils to Angelo's strict justice, which, as we see later on, isn't actual justice. <clears throat> um, the next theme is marriage. Marriage is a really common theme in Shakespeare's comedies. They always, with some exceptions obviously, always end with a, with a marriage. That's kind of how we like, oh, well this is a comedy because it ends in marriage and tragedies end in death. Um, but this comedy, it's an interesting look at marriage because uh, this is almost viewing marriage as a punishment. And I'll explain why. Um, Angelo and Lucio are forced to marry those with which they had sex. And at the very end, they obviously don't want to, because otherwise they would have earlier in the play. But um, Angelo, so he broke off his engagement with Mariana because she lost her dowry in uh, shipwreck, like five years ago. And, um, but he ends up sleeping with her unawares because of events. Um, and he thought she was Isabella, and that's a beautiful age-old trick that will never grow old. Um, and so, but he is forced to marry her at the end under the Duke's direction. And also Lucio impregnates a prostitute and is forced to marry her. But Lucio definitely doesn't want to do this. He protests because he claims that he will lose his masculinity if he is forced to marry this prostitute, and it's a really interesting reason why, because you'll see the line, the word cuckold, mm -hmm. and if my Shakespeare people will remember this word, um, cuckoldry is, um, they would put horns like of a bull or whatever on a man whose wife was unfaithful, and they would make fun of him and so he would be a cuckold because his wife was sleeping around, so obviously he's not enough of a man to please her and be a good husband. So Lucio's afraid of being a cuckold because his wife is a prostitute, and of course she's gonna keep being a prostitute if she's a prostitute now and I marry her, she's gonna keep being a prostitute. <clears throat> so he definitely doesn't wanna marry. He also says that marriage is at worse or as bad as death. So he's really not in favor of this idea. Um, so marriage is almost viewed as a punishment in the end of this play, which is interesting for these two characters. But the foil of this is the actual happy ending of the, uh, the Duke and Isabella, who get married. They do get married because silence is consent in Shakespeare's world. Um, and also Claudio and Julieta, they are reunited. And this marriage, the marriage between Julieta and Claudio is almost viewed as a rebirth of sorts. Um, because in the beginning they sinned and Julieta got pregnant and they had sex outside of marriage and that was terrible, but now it's almost like a rebirth kind of baptism situation with this new marriage at the end. Um, Cause uh, having sex outside of marriage is, is always bad, kids, don't do it. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> PSA. So, um, the interesting question that I have, that hopefully we can answer this in the play, is why does Isabella marry the Duke? Is she in love with him? Is she, like, attracted to him? Does she feel obligated to marry the Duke because of what he's done? Like, I don't know. That's a question that I want answered. <clears throat> okay, next. Sex. <laughs> There's a huge, huge, huge theme of this play. It's this, you cannot talk about this play without talking about it in some capacity. So bear with me. So the, um, 
the consequences following sex um, is the foil to what can be bought with sex because they don't always go hand in hand. Like you can buy things with sex without having to face consequences. <clears throat> so the first part, consequences of sex. They're, for getting sentenced to death is a consequence of having sex apparently. Um, <laughs> becoming pregnant before marriage, obviously. Um, and this brought shame to the woman, not necessarily all, all times to a man, because sexism in the 1500s and 1600s. Um, but she would be tainted, she would be seen as less than her peers, um, and she wouldn't be able to marry as well, like heaven forbid she can't do anything. So she's probably going to be an old maid and become a, a governess of something if she's lucky, but she won't have as good a life as she once would have if she had refrained from having sex. But not only like the shame brought upon it, but actually the illegitimacy and disease that sex brought with it. Um, because having legitimate children was literally everything. Um, and if you didn't have, if you weren't sure that your children were legitimate, you were screwed. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Um, but so having the legitimate children was everything too, like the lineage, because still in this day and age, the line of children was like the most important thing, inheritance. This is about the time when it kind of starts to go out of fashion with the later um, periods when <coughs> lords and things don't become as important, but still important here. Um, so what can be bought with this? Uh, money, obviously, you can get money. The, because the brothel keeper in the beginning and the prostitute, um, because although they were both illegal um, during the time of this play, um, they were still in existence um, for the desperate, because illegality doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to happen, obviously, as we see. <clears throat> but also sex is a favor to buy something you want, such as Claudia's freedom, um, but again, a woman's honor was based on her faithfulness or the lack thereof, and not only to your husband, but to your vows as a nun. Like, if you broke your vows as a nun, like, you're literally the worst sinner in the entire universe. Um, <clears throat> and for Isabella, sex is, was as bad as death, um, but it was also a spiritual death. It wasn't just a physical death for her. She would be violating her vows and would face judgment from heaven, which is infinitely worse than any judgment she would face on earth. Um, and Angelo manipulates this sanctity in an attempt to get what he wants and fails because Isabella is the purest of the pure and never even considers saving her brother's life and having sex because <clears throat> she's a great sister. Okay, the next theme, deceit. Fantastic concept. <clears throat> There's good versions of deceit and there are bad versions of deceit. Telling lies can get you things, apparently. But so the good versions that we see in this play, the Duke, for example, he disguises himself and tricks everybody. And he, the, his friar actually reminds me a little bit of the friar in Mandragola. Because he's like, although instead of counseling her to have sex, he's counseling her to not and trick Angela, but it was like sort of the same. Of course, the friar is the duke in disguise. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. So I thought that was really funny. 
Um, and he also, he spends a lot of his time spying on people. And funny story, this was actually, may or may not have been based on James I himself because apparently rumor has it that James I actually would disguise himself and go spy on people. So I'm not sure if that's historically accurate, but that's something I found during my research and I was like, that's actually really funny. Um, and given that this was performed at King James Court, I think that's actually hilarious. Um, so the friar may or may not be James I, or the Duke rather, but yeah, so anyway. Next, Mariana. This deceit is in, in important, very important to the play, um, because she pretends to be Isabella, and these, um, and she, in the process, she is attempting to save Claudio's life. This is a very noble act, and this is um, really, it's really interesting because these two versions of deceit are seen as noble and in process, they're for a good cause. And so we don't view this deceit as bad. Um, the bad deceit is Angelo and Lucio, um, because Angelo uses deceit to actively lie to people and try to manipulate them, and um, he tries to trick people into thinking Isabella is lying, or he, like at the very end of the play, he's a beautiful monologue. Um, he lies to Isabella about freeing her brother after having sex with her, <clears throat> and he has an amazing, amazing line. He says, my unsoiled name, the austereness of my life, my vouch against you and my place in the state, will, your so will so your accusation overweigh that you shall stifle in your own report and smell of calumny. So he's like, literally, in this monologue, he's like, you are nothing, and I am everything that the state is, and there's no way that you can overrule my word, and your case is hopeless, and it's just, oh, it's so good. Um, <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> Such a good play, guys. Um, and then Lucio, obviously. I love this guy. Um, he, he's constantly spreading lies about the Duke. He says the, the Duke like spends time with prostitutes and blah, blah, blah. And he's just an entire mess, but we love him anyway. And he says it to the Duke in disguise. Yeah. And the friar says, you're going to pay for this next. He says, no. <laughs> no, the not here. It's fine. And the Duke is like, actually, I am here. <laughs> Joke's on you, kid. Um, but so anyway, so that's a beautiful scene. Everything is beautiful in this play. It's so, Angelo is honestly one of the best Shakespeare villain types and antagonists. He has such, because he doesn't, he literally just stands there and he's like, I'm so amazing and you're literally nothing and nobody's going to believe you. And you're like, yeah, Angelo, you're right, but dang it. Like, it's just, he literally doesn't, oh, okay. <clears throat> Getting off track. Anyway, so next theme, light and dark. Shakespeare's obsessed with this theme. Obsessed with this theme. He uses it in probably every single play he's ever written in his entire existence. Light and dark, both physical and metaphorical. Because in Romeo and Juliet, we have what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east and Juliet is the sun. Because the light is good and the sun is heavenly and it's beautiful like Beatrice in the... Um, Paradiso and it's perfect in light and goodness. And then in Macbeth, we have like stars hide through fires, let not light see my black and deep desire. So it's, everything is really dark and mysterious and bad. Darkness is bad. Light is good. It's really simple. <laughs> we can do this, guys. Um, okay, so Angelo is the angel of darkness, quote unquote. Um, <clears throat> he literally has sex in the dark. Like, 
Nothing he does is seen by light, either metaphorical or physical. He does all his dealings in the dark. His lies and deceit are tied with darkness. And he only desires Isabella because she is virtuous. He doesn't desire her because she's beautiful, because he has this line, this monologue, and it's so amazing. And I'm going to quote two lines from it, and it's just stunning. This this guy. He says, most dangerous is that temptation that, that doth goad on us to sin in loving virtue. Never could this strumpet with all her double vigor, art, and nature once stir my temper, but this virtuous maid subdues me quite. And then he goes on. I know. And (laughs) later on, he goes on to say, "Dost thou desire her foully for these things that make her good?" It's like holy. Oh my gosh! It's just like oh my gosh, Angela, you're literally the worst. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just this monologue. It's an act two, scene two. Look it up if you haven't read it. Please read it. It's like the most glorious villain monologue you will find. I'm going to argue ever. (laughs) No, that's actually a very plausible argument. Um, Angelo is a funny character because he's being pulled in two directions and actually is being torn apart by the tidal forces of the psyche. On the one hand, um, he wants to possess possess, uh, Isabella's genuine piety because his is fraudulent. On the other hand, he wants to destroy Isabella's piety because his piety is fraudulent. And so they both move, both of these impulses move in the same direction. Yeah. And instead of destroying Isabella, he ends up destroying himself. Ironically, it's only Isabella's steadfast piety that saves his life in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's stunning. Like this whole, mo- he's like arguing with himself and it's just a beautiful image into the human condition of Angelo. But then we have Isabella, who's his foil um, in this light and dark theme. Isabella is forever virtuous, like literally forever. Um, Her name literally means devoted to God or pledged to God. It's Hebrew. Um, She's a constant source of light and hope in the play. And she, she only is angry once when she quotes the line, um, I will out his eyes yeah. and it's like wow okay Aunt Isabella she like goes straight for the jugular or the eyes rather but she only gets mad once but the rest of the play she's like literally like the most virtuous beautiful person we've ever seen and she would have chosen death over sin and the consequent disgrace she says the impression of keen whips I'll wear as rubies and strip myself to death as to a bed that longing have been sick, for ere I'll yield my body up to shame. She, if, <clears throat> she's rather die and also kill her brother than have disgrace brought upon her or both of them. But like, the interesting thing about it is her death would be a sort of martyrdom because to stay faithful to her vows and to God, um, it's it's more important to her to stay faithful to her vows because if she would rather die than break her vows. Um, and this is a sort of martyrdom for her. Um, it would be a spiritual death if she stayed alive. So she'd rather die than <clears throat> break her vow to God because that's the most important thing in the end of all things. 
Um, so, in conclusion, um, apparently it is never too late to grant somebody mercy, just so you all know, uh, no matter the crime. And uh, whatever it is, it probably isn't worth the risk, in case you were wondering. <laughs> an admirable reading, Bridget. Um, what do you think in reading it? I mean, I hope that you read it before you read my essay, because you're likely to uh, be too influenced by criticism that you get before the play itself, yeah? I enjoyed reading it on its own merits uh, without reading your essay, but I was confused by several parts, and I, I did look up a little bit of the regular criticism, I read it, and this doesn't seem to be representing what I just read. Uh, and then I read your essay, and I was convinced by your argument. It's well, it took me a, about 25 years to cobble that together, you know, bit by bit. I was like an ant, you know, I found my crumb, I have to bring it up <laughs> top of the ant, he'll know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, the allegory seemed obvious, when I first saw it, but there were so many things that had to be worked out. For example, this bed trick. Right? Um, it's a kind of a strange thing for a Christian to be doing, you know, this kind of deceit in darkness and silence. What? I mean, what sense does that make? Um, also, I mean, why does Andrew, why does Lucy, or rather the Duke, care about people's sex lives. If he does care about people's sex lives, why not stay and <laughs> take care of them? I mean, what's going on here? Uh, <clears throat> um, there's a great line in Act 1, Scene 1, where he says, we will find what these seamers be. All right? And uh, the idea is to disclose to the world, but also to the people involved, what they are really like. All right? So the time-honored Shakespearean theme of self-knowledge right, is a very big deal here. Right. Angelo, at least to begin with, genuinely believes in his own, what I would call, pharisaical piety. Right. He is clearly concerned with the letter rather than the spirit of the law. And he also does the right thing for the wrong reasons. And Christians have to be concerned not just with the right conduct, but with the right intention for conduct. Right? He persecutes uh, Claudio and Giulietta. Right? Even though, look, um, their transgression is not a good thing, but um, it is a foolish thing for these two young people to be killed over this. It is lacking in mercy. It is lacking in charity. It's deeply unchristian. So, uh, Julieta, Julieta and Claudio, their transgression starts the game going, and uh, they are Adam and Eve. Right. They disobey 
and are punished for it, but the, fun, the punishment has a, a number of degrees. The first is uh, Claudio and Juliet have to be taken through the town and exposed publicly right, to ridicule and to condemnation. Um, that ought to be enough, actually, all right, because what we're doing is trying to keep moral order. Uh, any punishment that goes beyond the necessities of moral order is, in fact, not Christian at all. all right. At the end, both Lucio and Angelo are going to be publicly exposed as being morally moral transgressors, sinners. And then the punishment, death for their sin, gets commuted so that they're allowed to continue on in this life. Mercy, what's the line of mercy and mortality being Vienna? And uh, both of these are here. Um, the potential for death is always there. Uh, it's very thoughtful of the pirate magazine to die at exactly the time we need to switch the head to, uh, you know, for Isabella's brother. And uh, Barnadine, what do you think about him? That's funny. He is. He, um, this is such a leaden play that you really need to play up and do a very thorough job of the comic relief bit players. Mm -hmm. right, yeah. I was going to say that's one part where I actually saw like comedy because um, he just basically refuses to die and yeah. they just say okay alright we'll get you another time and he just goes back to sleep <laughs> well there's a great line from the Duke unfit to die unfit to live which is another great line and since he's unfit to do either he says look put him back in his cage <laughs> as the Duke says go mend go mend <laughs> fix this. They, then you, if you work hard, you will have earned getting killed. But right now, we, you know, you're too bad even to kill. Yeah. Are they the ones supplying him with the, the alcohol, or does he just keep... Uh, <laughs> I'm wondering how that got in there. <laughs> yeah. But he's not a permanent drunk, apparently. <laughs> All right. Barnabine is uh, reprobate. He's not willing, or at least at this point, um, he's a sinner who knows he's a sinner, just doesn't care stay drunk and stay evil, all right? And uh, the Duke is willing, is actually kind enough to say, look, we'll kill you later, right? But we're gonna have to raise your, elevate your moral status before we get around to killing you, right? Maybe we won't even do it then because the Duke mixes mercy and justice, all right? So Barnadine is kind of a sublime character, all right? Um, many of us waking up with a hangover I've actually felt like Bardine. <laughs> Get out of here. Don't talk to me. Leave me alone. I don't care what it is. All right. And everybody said, go back where you came from. Sleep it off. Um, not everybody gets saved in the play. He may or may not get saved. It's up in the air. But uh, he gets left in the supervision of Friar Peter, who we assume is connected to the church once again, and he's going to help save sinful man. So God gives us breaks we don't deserve. All right? Even 
to someone like Angelo that should know better. Why? Because look, knowing better, right, is, well, Plato says to know the good is to do it. Uh, Shakespeare's saying, nay. Angelo knows perfectly well what he's doing is wrong, and he's choosing it because his emotions have gotten the better of him. And uh, this is a vindication of the Christian idea of moral responsibility, and also the Christian idea of justice. God comes back at the end, all right? And actually, there's a line in uh, Act 5, because Act 5 is just one scene, where he says, you know, you look like power divine that has seen my trespass. In case you weren't paying attention <laughs> to what the blasted play is about, he says, you know, you remind me of power divine. <laughs> okay, yeah. For a while as I was reading your essay, I was like, I'm not sure if this is quite exactly what Shakespeare was intending, and then I got to that line, I was like, oh, this is exactly what he was intending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remember, this play has been beaten up. All right. In other words, I think I can justify that claim just using the text that he has, uh, that we have. Uh, there's no reference to God here at all, which is really weird. Save your honor. What? <laughs> what is save your honor? What does that mean? Um, this is a, a very thick allegory and when it was gone over 1606 the Puritans succeed passing a law you're not allowed to use God's name on stage or on account of you don't want to violate the commandments so somebody went back here and chopped this thing to pieces and not just this play but they had to go through all of Shakespeare's work and get rid of all references to God and in different contexts, you can do that in different ways, right? You can, t for example, when uh, uh, Isabella and Angelo are arguing here, they make reference to Job. Ah, if Job could do that. Neither believe in Job, in Job. Um, in fact, this was clearly a reference to God before people made a hash of it, all right? So we have good reason to believe that the text is corrupt. Remember that point where, I, I mean, look, I've read this very, Remember that point where the pronoun is wrong? And that gives the game away, actually. Because uh, that pronoun mistake, which is what beginners learning the English language might make, um, it's not the kind of mistake that Shakespeare makes. Right? So clearly it was God. They didn't change the pronoun. And so when we look at heaven, we go back, we find it all over the place. Right? Uh, The attempt to create the new Jerusalem, the morally orderly society, that's the project of Western religion. All right. We've all been given the job of creating the new Jerusalem. And in the real world, the world around us, no society, no city is in fact lacking in the corruption and evil that the New Jerusalem is supposed to get rid of. So what this is, is, is an allegory. Now this is brilliant. You have to remember, the Puritans are trying to close down all the theaters. And they are not, they are far from wrong. In other words, the audience for Shakespearean plays are like the audience for professional wrestling. 
You know, no, we think of these elevated people and you know tuxedos and gowns going in to see some sort of edifying uh, play. Not back then. Back then, everybody or almost everybody in the audience is liquored up. All right, they were either coming from or going to brothels, which are in fact side by side with playhouses. All right, many of the people who own playhouses also own brothels, so it was kind of a two for one deal. Now, remember that use of the word liberty? Uh, Lucia says to Claudia, why are you uh, being dragged away in chains? For too much liberty, Lucio. And it turns out that liberty is that Pauline bondage of the will, but he has also taken liberties with Julieta. And a liberty, in an archaic use of the term, is a domain in the suburbs of a city where city laws don't apply. That's why they were notorious as a place for whorehouses and playhouses, yeah. Were they even like that for dramas? Yeah. Like, yeah, and comedy? Hmm. That's right. So, well look, um, they don't have the alternatives that we have. We have the internet, we have video. For them, uh, live play is the only way to experience drama. Hmm. And if they're going to do that, um, you know, you can get a two-for-one ticket, you know, from there to the brothel, since the same guy owns them both. All right. uh, fights, drunken, carrying on, you know, the usual things that you get with a rowdy, drunken audience. Again, the professional wrestling audience is about right. And yet, since this is not produced for the Globe Theater, this is produced for court, he's got a message that he's bringing to the king and court. And the message is, these Puritans are in fact bad Christians who are attempting to use the state to debauch Christianity who is Isabella, consecrated to God, get it? She's the church. Hmm. The church is trying to seduce the state, or rather the state is trying to seduce the church, and if she had said yes, her brother would have died anyway, and she would have gone to hell because of, you know, as it says in Paul, I forget where it, which it is, uh, but Paul says, those that do evil, that good may come of it, their damnation is just. Right? So the idea then is that you can't do good things with using evil means. You want to save your brother, that's a good thing. But you can't engage in any sin in the process of doing it that will morally taint it. Yeah. The brilliance of that is just astounding because he's justifying comedy by exposing sin, but he's exposing the sin of the people who are trying to destroy the comedy. They, that, that, the layers of that are so... It's a stroke of genius. Because look, he's got a re re reply to the Puritans because they're trying to abolish theater. And they're trying to abolish theater because they associate it with immorality. And what makes this very embarrassing is that there is, in fact, a considerable connection to immorality. All right, whorehouses and taverns and brawls and you know the usual uh, carousing you're going to get 
just outside the the city limits. Uh, yeah. I'm confused on how the Puritans could be criticizing this if they're trying to get rid of the theaters and purify, like make comedy better. Well, no, they're try- not trying to make comedy not better, better. They're trying to make comedy not exist. Right. So how is Shakespeare criticizing that? Okay. Angelo mm-hmm. is a Puritan, as it says in Act 1-1. Lord Angelo is precise. Precision is a synonym for Puritan. So Lord, Lord Angelo does not, uh, what is he, scarce agrees that he has blood flowing in his veins, lots of fasting and praying and all that sort of stuff. He's ostentatiously devout, but as he says, let no man hear me, in this I take pride. Right. So Angelo is a whitened sepulcher, as it says in Scripture looks good on the outside, but contains all corruption within. And he's comparing that to the Puritans. That is, Angelo is Mr. Puritan. Yeah, he's he's the exemplar of Puritanism. And Isabella would be the, the true Christian. The true Church. Mm-hmm. And same with the Duke. With the Duke. The Duke is God. Mm-hmm. In other words. Uh, he gives the laws in the beginning of the play and everybody ignores them because that's what happens with Yahweh's laws. Remember those Ten Commandments? Right? Well, every time Yahweh um, gives people moral injunctions, Yahweh then goes away and the people then break them because that's the way people are. And then he gets pissed off and sends in some bad stuff like the Babylonians and that is God's way of shaking his finger at you. And then the Jews uh, mend their ways they reconcile with God, and then God lets them go. He sends the Persians, and says, look, let the, conquer the Babylonians, and let the Hebrews go. Or no, that would be the way that the Jews at the time would have read history. Right. Note that twice the Jews have been in bondage, once in Egypt and once in Mesopotamia. And this is the wages of sin. So the Duke is Yahweh. Yahweh gives the people of Vienna laws, but the people of Vienna break them. So the Duke says, I'm going away. Now, this is straight up stolen from all the absent master parables in the Synoptic Gospels. You know, the... uh, owner of the vineyard goes away and he says to his servants, servants, keep the vineyard going. Here are the talents and all the rest of that stuff. Uh, Take care of things. When I come back, I'll look for a reckoning. Um, So it's, the Duke is Yahweh to begin with. When he returns, disguised as the friar, he's Jesus. Mm -hmm. He comes away and says, uh, He's blessing everyone. He says Benedicte quite a bit, quite a bit, and then he goes to inquire among the sinners in prison, which actually is a, a section from the Epistle of Peter. Right, and uh, he goes in and he says to uh, Julietta, Julietta, you're pregnant, and this is awkward. Um, the Duke intends to 
execute you after you give birth to your child, and he's going to give birth to your would-be husband, Claudio, um, even faster than that. Um, <clears throat> I've come here to prepare you. Uh, do you repent your sins? And Juliet says yes. And the Duke says, hold it. <laughs> do you repent your sins because you got caught and now you're going to get killed? Or do you repent them because they're evil and you recognize your transgression? She says, because they're evil, I recognize my transgression. She is the woman taken in adultery in the Gospel of John. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. So what he says is, well, look, since you repent your sins, your sins are forgiven. Don't be doing that anymore. This is you-know-who. All right. So the idea of the duke in disguise, disguised as an itinerant preacher who brings uh, moral rege regeneration to people, this is clearly Jesus, yeah. Representative of the authority of the church. Yeah, it all works very well. Um, I think that this originally was a Trinitarian work. It's clear who it is that's Yahweh. It's also equally clear who it is that's Jesus. But the bird is not easy to get. I mean, how do we, I mean, I, believe me, I've looked through this thoroughly, looking for the slightest feather. <laughs> right, but there is none. Right. Um, my suspicion is that the end of this play has gotten a pretty bad beating. All right. Remember in those two, those two scenes in Act 4? Go back and have a look at those. A 13-line scene? A 15-line scene. Okay, what is this for? What it's for is to introduce five new characters <laughs> who don't do anything in the remainder of the play. We've got Valentinus, Crassus, uh, you know, the, the whole menagerie of them. The problem is, is that there's no point in doing this. Uh, remember, uh, it's what's called uh, Chekhov's gun. Chekhov, the great playwright and a great um, prose writer as well. But uh, he says, look, if you have a play, and in the first scene there's a gun on the mantle, before you get to act to the end of the play, somebody's got to get shot by that gun. The reason why is you don't introduce extraneous, pointless things. You can put anything on the wall if nobody's going to get shot. All right. Now here, we have five new guys introduced, all right, and uh, they don't get introduced to do anything. They don't speak, they don't talk, they don't act. Um, what I think is here is um, a big, a much longer scene that's been chopped to pieces. And all we have left are these kind of bare stage directions, all right. Otherwise, I don't understand why we get that act four, scene three, and scene four, I think is what they are. Um, those don't look to me like they make any sense. They don't push the plot, plot along. They're kind of stage directions for this big happy ending. But uh, when I went back and looked for the word ghostly, I found it twice. Right. A ghostly father. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, this ghostly father, that's the point, of, the point at which he becomes ghostly. And one of the people that describes him as ghostly is him. Right, because it is actually the Duke, or rather, it's the friar 
who is the disguised duke, that says, ah, you know, this friar's really ghostly. Well, um, this may be the Trinitarian aspect of what's left of it. All right. And uh, these new players may have been uh, elements in what you, we would regard as the book of Revelation. You know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, something like that. I suspect that's what they actually were to begin with, but I don't know because we have what we have. Yeah. Um, to answer Bridget's question, um, could you then compare like the Duke um, marrying Isabella as like the Christ marrying the church? That's exactly right. Mm. That is exactly what this is meant to be. Mm. Uh, she is the church. And um, church and state, or uh, uh, God and his church, should not be sullied by ambitious politicians that want to debauch Christianity for their own perverse ends. You know, this, this is a hammer and tongs uh, indictment of Puritanism. What, what Shakespeare is saying is, you guys really aren't Christian. All right? hmm. You're interested in, in improving everybody's morals but your own. All right? And the true Christianity will be found in Isabella when Mariana has asked for Angelo's life and the, and the Duke says, come on, I can't spare him. This guy's really bad. The law is the law. He deserves to be killed. Then she asks Isabella, lend me your knees. In other words, this is the church in interceding for sinful man. She kneels down and says to the Duke, I will pray with Mariana that mercy and, just, and justice should be united in Vienna. And they are. But it's important that she thinks at this point that her brother's head has been cut off. She thinks that, that she's been subject to this head switch, which is the real Machiavellian thing that the Duke does. Yeah. That was even more moving to me than The Tempest, just the, the beauty of that forgiveness. So. Yeah, it really is. And when she does that, we know we've got the real thing here. Yeah. Right. She's been tested, she's been tried, now we can have Yahweh rec uh, reconciled with his church. It's the end of the world. Yeah. I don't know too much other Shakespeare, but I would find it hard to believe that he wouldn't be Christian just based off of this idea, or is he just presenting it? Well, here's the deal. The play after this is King Lear. Have any of you read Lear? I mean, Lear is an amazing play. But uh, Lear says someplace, like flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. Hmm. I mean, there's no way to reconcile that with Christianity in, in any respect. Um, I don't know who of any of these people are, represent Shakespeare's self. In other words, it's clear that he knows how to deploy Christian and biblical arguments. Mm -hmm. That's not the same thing as being a Christian or taking the Bible seriously as mm -hmm. the scripture. Yeah. Right? So what he's doing is skewering the Puritans with their own favorite book. See, look, he could have written something really rude and bawdy, right? He could have gone full Aristophanes on it. That would just help the Puritans out because they would say, look at how raunchy and how rude this Shakespearean comedy is. They really are. Everything we said 
about them, they really are. They're, they're depra depraved and depraving. They're bad for society. And the proof is that he holds up to ridicule us moral people that want to purify Christian religion in England. So he says, no, no, no. I have a different idea. I'm going to create a five-act comedy that synopsizes the whole Bible. That's an amazing thing to do. And then what we get is a parable made up of parables. Right? I mean, measure for measure um, is taken from the synoptics. It's the only Shakespearean play drawn, whose title is drawn from the Bible. And uh, then, very strangely, what we have doesn't seem to reflect anything about God or Jesus because it doesn't get mentioned. You have to go back and work on this to put it together, to be able to figure out what it is that's going on here. This is his way of sending a message to court that drama is not intrinsically immoral. Instead, what he's doing is vindicating Christian morality. He's vindicating it against evil men like Lucio. He's also vindicating it against his would-be defenders like Angelo. Like both the Bible and Plato, this is both a comedy and a tragedy. Well, no, because nobody nobody dies at the end. Marriage is death. Marriage is death. Uh, no, marriage is painful. Lucio says that marriage is like death. Who, who does Lucio? Yes, he does. Right. Um, but if we were to ask him, Lucio, would you rather get die than? It was great the punishment to get. He has to be whipped and then and then married and then hanged. And then the Duke says, look, we're going to let the whipping and the hanging slide. You're now going to marry Kate. Keep down the woman you impregnated that you claimed you didn't. Now, she's the whore of Babylon, right? And Babylon, we're trying to turn Babylon, the evil city, into the new Jerusalem. And we do that by unifying mercy and justice, right? Vindicating morality, but then being sparing in the use of uh, the harshest kind of punishment. Instead, both Angelo and Lucio are revealed as being fornicators to the city of Vienna itself, which is what Angelo was doing with Claudio when the play began, not wrongly. Right? In other words, Shakespeare here is not presenting us with a brief for sexual license. Instead, what he's saying is, as, as somewhere it's in there, all sex, all ages smack of this vice, which is true, actually. All right. I understand that, uh, um, for example, uh, uh, a, a college like, like AMU um, tries to um, mitigate or decrease um, uh, sex without, outside of marriage. Does it succeed completely? No. Is it possible to succeed completely? No. This is just human nature. All right? Doesn't matter how many rules you put together. All right? Human nature is always going to be moving in the opposite direction. Right? So, this is his message to King James. The Puritans are dangerous. They're hypocritical. They want to take control of the government because 
they think they're in a position to morally judge the rest of society. But as it says in Scripture, take the beam out of your own eye before you take the boat out of your brother's. Now, I liked Aeschylus. Uh, the, his name was sort of the tip-off as to what he is. All right. He's always saying, you know, Angelo, people are flawed. You ought to lighten up. <laughs> and Angelo says, no, no, no. Well, well, yeah, they are flawed, but the hell with them. He said, instead, I'm going to be rigorous with the law, and if I break the same law, I get the same punishment. It's not a tough guy. Eskel says, no, this is not a good idea. I had a bunch of these uh, brothel owners and brothel touts, uh, Elbow and Pompey and the rest of them. Um, I had them come before me, and yeah, I could have had them killed, <clears throat> but I didn't. I said, look, uh, you're going to have to get honest work, and you're going to have to stop this. Uh, one of the great lines he asked of Pompey is, well, <coughs> you're uh, gathering patrons for a brothel. Uh, is this a lawful uh, occupation, Pompey? Pompey says, well, if the law would allow it, it would be. <laughs> well, okay. Um, that's not, that, that's uh, invoking positive law as opposed to natural moral, moral law. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think the, the, um, the contradiction is so obvious. Like in the beginning, he, before he commits the act, he says that if I was to do something like Claudio, I would love to be, I would more than willingly be punished the same way that he is. And, I mean, later on, I see that he is. Yeah. That's right. Um, but he is, una- he is able to prosecute everybody's sins but his own. That's actually a very powerful indictment of Puritanism. It's deeply anti it's unchristian. So we have a corrupt text, but you can get the outlines of a biblical allegory. From the beginning, transgression of the law to the condemnation by Yahweh, the reconciliation mediated by the friar, who's really the duke in disguise, and at the end, everyone is properly punished, but then the punishment is mitigated so that no one fails to get mercy. And it's this mercy that gives life. All right? So this is the spirit of the law triumphing over the letter of the law. Right? And the spirit of the law is mercy and an understanding of human frailty. Right? As Hamlet says, if everyone got what they deserved, who would escape a whipping? Right. So this is his way of writing a this is Shakespeare's way of writing a send up, an attack on Puritanism, wrapped up in the Bible itself. The story of Tamar is the bed switch. Right. Uh, if 
if you don't know the story of tomorrow, you don't know Genesis, this is going to be completely opaque to you. Fortunately for Shakespeare, both he and everybody at court knew the Bible really well. Uh, if contemporary literary critics look at this and don't, they're not going to be able to make any sense of it. So, um, once you realize that the bed trick is the story of Tamar, if you go back, it turns out that Judah says, after he impregnates Tamar, because she pretends to be a hooker, um, she has been more righteous than I. Now this, all right, is going to be the source of the line of King David. God has chosen this. So written into God's providential plan for the universe is having this moral transgression in the lineage of David, which turns out to be the lineage of Jesus. This was not the Puritan's favorite Bible story. All right. So he says, I have something for you. It's the story of tomorrow. You're going to like this. Because <laughs> it turns out that God has his ways, and God has his reasons for doing things. You don't understand them, but he does. All right. Uh, the story of tomorrow, when, when Angelo has sex with uh, Mariana, it's in the dark and it's uh, uh, silent. This is a rejection of the word and the light. It's not an accident. Right. Yeah. When uh, at the end the consent of the marriage with the Duke is given by silence. Is this a reference to Job? To Job? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it is. It could be. I, I, you know, I know that Job is enjoined to shut up. He's shut up, he explained. Uh, right. um, it might be a reference to Job. I never thought of it, but you're right. It could be. Well, you get tested and shut up. Yeah. Yeah, second part of the question, just, just a historical context, but would Shakespeare have had any way of being personally familiar with the Mandragola or any of Machiavelli's writings? I don't know. That I don't know. Um, he probably, if he hasn't read Machiavelli, he's, he's probably heard the term used as a term of abuse. Right. Uh, I don't know if he's actually read this stuff. We have some reason to believe that he's read uh, Montaigne and that the discovery of Bermuda, which is Montaigne's responding to, in, of cannibals, is in fact what Shakespeare's going to pick up for the Tempest. Right. Um, this is usually regarded as a problematic play, and it's usually regarded as very difficult to interpret. The argument I would make is that, yes, it is difficult to interpret, primarily because we have a corrupt text. Um, the reading that I've done <coughs> I've done what I could to get all the crap out of the way to kind of an archaeological dig of it. Uh, I think we have a fragmentary text, but from what I've been able to work out here, this seems to be the history of the world as is described in the Bible from, from Adam and Eve through the apocalypse, through the end of the world. And when God finally comes and judges, and he finds the Puritans morally guilty. In other words, the Puritans are no better than anybody else. They pretend that they are. And that's true both then and now. Right? It's an amazingly powerful allegory once you figure out what he's doing. Because look, the, how can the Puritans object to this? It's the blasted Bible. 
<laughs> That's the point. In other words, look, if he had put together something really rude and raunchy, that would prove the Puritans right. Here he says, no, 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 I'm going to borrow an, uh, a stick from, or I'm going to borrow an arrow from your quiver and I'm going to shoot it at you. Hmm. I mean, it's a brilliant choice. So, uh, yeah, I think this is a, one of Shakespeare's greatest achievements. Yeah. I never thought I would find a comedy as good as the symposium. This is the only thing I've seen to equal it. I believe you are right. In other words, this is truly uh, um, a mountaintop of Christian writing. All right. Whether he himself was a Christian, I don't know. He right. may have been. He may not have been. He may have been a vegetarian. <laughs> he may have been a homosexual. As a matter of fact, he certainly, he, he's very likely bisexual. If you've read uh, the uh, sonnets. Um, <laughs> Shall I compare the two of Summer's Day as written to a 17-year-old boy? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but this is as queer as a $3. <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's on the other hand, remember the other the other bunch. I don't remember how many of them are written to his dark mistress or his dark lady. Who the hell knows who that is? <laughs> what I, what we do know is that Shakespeare does not cohabit with his wife for twenty five years. Instead, lives in London, and he's in the entertainment industry, which is about morally what it what it is now. Okay, so uh, that makes me think that. Maybe Shakespeare was a Catholic, maybe he was a Christian, and then again, maybe not. All right. um, his personal life is too suspect for me to feel comfortable with the idea that he's an Orthodox anything. Yeah. One of the reasons I find uh, Prospero's speech at the end of The Tempest so moving is, is my, my, uh, my goal is to please, uh, please forgive me. Uh, That's right. Here his goal is not to please. <laughs> is to give Puritanism a good flogging, but to flog them with their own favorite book. How you like me now? This gets one production in its first 60 years of existence. It's at court. Remember that, that Puritans do, did not celebrate Christmas because they thought it was a popish holiday. So they wouldn't have been there. So this is the time to slide this in. You put this in front of the king when there's no Puritans in the audience and everybody has a good laugh and Angelo, our would-be would ruler who's in fact a fallen angel. Now, you may have noticed I made some elaborate discussions of the uh, render of the Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, right? The coin imagery, right? Assay him, assay him. No, you assay metal, you know, assay well, in fact, you do if you look at enough definitions in the OED. Um, much of the symbolism about stamping coins is uh, directed at Angelo. An angel at the time is a 10 shilling coin. Okay. And he says at the beginning, um, why don't you have some more tests done before you. Uh, before you, uh, why don't you test my metal more thoroughly before you make me uh, the ruler temporarily of Vienna? Um, remember, at this point, spelling has not been standardized in English. 
So when he says test my metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, it means personal qualities, but it means also M-E-T-A-L, because there's no difference for Shakespeare. Test my metal. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Get the idea. He's a counterfeit coin. They talk about the uh, fornication leading to uh, the counterfeiting of God's image in the womb. Again, all this coin and stamping symbolism runs all the way through. All right? And that's biblical as well. I mean, this is an amazing intellectual achievement. I mean, first of all, he's got to spend quite a bit of time saying, how can I deal with the Puritans? They're trying to close down the theaters. And if that happens, I'm done. What am I going to do? He says, I have to show them how immoral they really are. But I have to be very careful how I do that because if I am overtly bawdy and scarless, they win the argument. So what I'm going to do is show that they do not live up to their own moral standards and that no one can, which is why people need God's grace and mercy. Remember that, that during the Puritan Revolution, when the Puritans finally do take, between 1640 and 1660, when they finally do take control of the government, they in fact do make theater illegal. This, they pull the theaters down. Right. So, I mean, again, he's defending his livelihood. He's defending drama. And in some ways, he's defending Christianity from these harpies. Yeah. They're foolish enough to try to cage up that that's actually a very nice way of putting it, yeah. Um, all ages, all sects smack of this vice, chill. Doesn't mean that it's good, doesn't mean that you have to approve of it, but don't get hysterical either. Right? Particularly don't get hysterical over your own imagined virtue. All right? Because the reason why you're focusing on other people's vices is because you'd rather not think about your own. Render unto Caesar things that are Caesar's. I think this is one of the. I think this is the greatest comedy ever written. That's my view. You don't have to believe that. There will be no. You know, I'm not going to examine you on that. It's just that uh, it took me a very long time to put this together. But the ambitions of this comedy are really amazing. Right? And uh, unfortunately, you know, it's been messed up. But you can still make out the rough contours of what's going on um, if you plug it back into the Bible and also if you use uh, knowledge of history. That's why history for all the human sciences as opposed to the natural sciences, um, if you're going to do any kind of natural science, you have to start out with physics because physics is the really big stuff and the really little stuff. The in-between stuff is stuff like chemistry or biology and that is ultimately all reducible to physics if it's natural science. Okay. Um, the same is true of history for the human sciences, the humanities. If it is not somehow connected to real history, then it is literature, it is poetry, it is imaginary. Right? And I like poetry and I like imaginative literature, but history can give us an invaluable resource in figuring out what it means and how it works. Uh, 
there's a reason why I give you the texts that we cover in these two years in roughly chronological order. History matters, and it can tell you stuff. You're living in history. So physics, if you want to become a scientist, history, if you want to become a humanist. Now, I don't think we have class on Thursday because it's Holy Thursday. Okay. Um, I will send you a story. You've seen it already, but the student, it's just lovely. Uh, it's, uh, it's not an unpleasant read. It's just a few pages, but it's deeply moving in its uh, religious uh, message. Now, uh, I've talked to most of you about potential paper topics uh, those of, I, of you that I have not, send me an email <laughs> and let us get that done. Right? Um, for next class, we're going to read just a little bit of Cervantes. Right? And then a week after that, you owe me a paper. And there's nothing I can do to extend it. Don't, I'm telling you now, don't ask for an extension because I have to have the grades in that day. I can't go any further. That being said, what I'd like you to read is those sections of Cervantes. It's about 5% of the book. That's about all you need in order to understand pretty much what's going on in the other 95%. <laughs> right? um, and this is consistent with my argument in a more general sense that comedy can be cognitive. Uh, I, you know, people, philosophers spend a lot of time talking about the depth of tragedy and you see human finitude and, you know, I- imperfection. But it seems to me that comedy can be equally informative, equally cognitive. You know, if you handle it right. High comedy, like Plato or this, really is. Alright? Alright then. A week from today, read Cervantes, and uh, shoot me emails about your papers. Alright? Alright. I will see you all then. That old fantastical Duke of Dark Boys.